listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hello. Hello. G'day. Welcome yeah. back. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I am back. Mm. After two weeks away, so good to be here. Uh, it is the Breakfasters podcast, of course, for the week, the 17th of June to the 21st of June. It was a big one. Uh, we kicked things off talking about what we've been up to the last couple of weeks. We haven't caught up for a while. Mm. I told you about my plane ride home and my jet lag. Yes, and which you are crying. still getting over. Oh, it still continues. <laughs> uh, we also had a really good chat with uh, legendary filmmaker Richard Lowenstein about his new Michael Hutchins film called Mystify. Uh, we had a chat about the um, upcoming Community Cup, mm. or if you're listening, it might have already happened, but uh, just about my anxieties around it because um, I'm playing for the first time this year. And uh, also uh, Michael Harden got to come in and talk to us about uh, ethical uh, procurement of Indigenous game mate. And in addition to all that goodness, artist Paola Bala came in ahead of the Emerging Writers Festival to talk about speaking truth to power. And uh, Tony Birch, who mentions Paola in uh, in our chat with him, came in to talk about his new novel, The White Girl, plus... Uh, Sarah's run in with Italian octopuses, <laughs> which you think Italians gesture with their arms. Try eight arms. That's that's what's going on there. Well done. Thanks. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, oh, it's good to have you back, Sarah. Um, <laughs> it's good to be back. Uh, really, can I say it really is good to be back? I'm not just... I got two weeks is a perfect amount of time to be away from Australia. Do you think? Oh, because I was excited to see my dog. I was excited for cold air. Yeah, right. And I got picked. We got Woody picked us up. Our friend Woody picked us up. But I think also before you go though, you know that you're only going to be away for two weeks. Yeah, but even by the end of it, I was going oh. And when we got picked up, the car on the back had triple R sticker, PBS sticker. Oh, three CR, yeah. and we. I walked out to the car, and I was like, "Oh, it feels really good to see that." And then driving around yesterday, seeing all triple R stickers again, and I don't know, I just yeah. felt feel like I was coming it's home to, to a back family. Home. That is a really a neglected aspect of travel: the time that you're away. Yes, mm, and you, if the fact that you were ready to come home, you just nailed it. But Thank I you. Mm. But that's but that's like you knew the how long you're going away for. But if you you know, if you were going for a month, say yes, like before you went, you you've planned for a month, so you've mentally planned for a month. I oh yeah, I take that point. So if you had have gone like uh, come back a week early, all of a sudden you've had to come back like half your trip. Then obviously, oh, I don't know. What I'm I sure. know, what, yeah, I know what you're trying to yeah, say. Yeah, but uh, you don't have any of those residual feelings like oh maybe we should move to Bologna. No, uh, I really didn't. Mm. Oh, it, it was it was a really nice. Leaving and going, oh, I'm just, I'm ready. Mm. I'm ready to be home. I'm ready to be comfortable. I just, yeah, I was over the heat of Rome. Did you get a free upgrade? Oh, you know, I didn't get a free upgrade, but you know what I did get? What? In the last leg home, so from the Dubai to Melbourne, we got the front four seats with the extra leg room. Where all the kids sleep. Yeah, okay. So that's the first thing that Andrew said. You would, he was so... He, he was it never like, have occurred to me. He was negator about it because we were around all the babies. Yeah, but that's where they stick all the babies. We were with a, another adult couple in that full, the full middle seats where mm. we had all that extra leg room. I was just so excited. No one pushing over me. You just get to get up and leave mm. when you need. Oh, that's very handy, yes. And the only babies that were near us were to the left of us and they were little Italian families and apparently Italian babies don't cry. They were silent for the whole... <laughs> What? They're just well behaved. 
Apparently Italian babies don't cry. What? I don't what know. Planet? I what? Don't know. They just didn't cry. You've met two Italian babies <laughs> that didn't cry well, yeah. for a few hours and I'm all of a sudden. You, it's cultural. Australian kids are so loud. God, amazing. What do you want about? I don't know. I'm drowsy from wine and pasta, the babies. <laughs> with, the, with the extra leg room, I always uh, feel... Uh, like I wish I was taller to, <laughs> yeah. to make use of it. Of oh, the leg room. Yeah, yeah this is totally wasted on me. Uh, oh, I feel you as well. Well, I felt like it was it was well used for me. Andrew still complained the entire journey because <laughs> he doesn't sleep on planes. And by the end, he is like, a, I'm only saying this because I know he's asleep right now. He's like a toddler by the end of it. Just so, oh, I've got to get off the plane. <laughs> right. And all the babies are behaving better than him. <laughs> But it was only the Italian <laughs> ones. But it was oh, a, it was a good. Wow. I really appreciated that last. Extra, I felt like it was a bit of a gift from the mm. universe to have that little bit of leg room. Except the lady that I was sleeping next to, I sleep quite well on planes, and I it, the only time I woke up was when I'd be nudged from the side. So I think that I was sleeping and oh, slowly no. oh, getting too over. close to her, closer than she wanted me to her. Did you apologise oh, when you woke nah, up? Because I didn't really understand. You know when you kind of wake up mid-plane yeah. sleep and you go, oh, oh, and I'd go back to sleep on the other side. Yeah. Oh, and then she, yeah, anyway, other than that. Maybe you were snoring and she was giving you a nudge. Uh, Andrew would have told me if I was snoring. I told yeah, him no. to wake me if I was dribbling or snoring. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, no, no. That's what I did on the weekend. Yeah, great. Um... What, how was your weekend? <laughs> oh, look, I mean, it was pretty uneventful. I did catch the I, – I don't have my phone with me. I left my phone somewhere. So it's been – we're approaching what? 12 hours without a telephone. And it, you know how people say – what do you mean? Without a mobile? Yeah, like I, I can't – I don't know where it is. Well, I, I think I know where it is. Anyway, you, why are you George, being so calm about this? this be... Well, this is the thing. So, so I think I'm pretty sure it's – you know, I, it is where I left it. Uh, but anyway, I don't have it. And you know how people are like, oh, back in the day when people didn't have phones, they talked to each other on public transport and then you're like, no, he didn't, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I got on the tram without a phone. <laughs> Within 30 seconds, No. Uh, this stranger says, oh, are you looking for something? Like, oh. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't think I've got my phone. And she said, oh, and she's with her partner. And maybe they were tourists because they were really you know, jazzy and full yeah. of life. And, um, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I, I, I said, uh, she goes, oh, do you know there's a, a fear of not having a mobile phone? Do you know what the word is? And normally when someone says, do you know something, they don't actually want you to fill in the gap. They're, yeah. they're about to tell you. But she genuinely was playing the quids. And I, <laughs> I said, oh, is it nomophobia? And she goes, yes, because I, I, I know that for some reason. Uh, I, do, I think I worked on a thing about nomophobia. Anyway, then, then I was like, oh. And I found out a neologism recently, that, a, a word that hasn't been invented before, uh, chronophobia. Uh, and that's a, a fear of time. And then we talked about the fear of time. Is that real? Yeah. Crying well, it is. Real. Well, it's it it's never existed before. But I was listening to an author who created the word, and I'm like, oh, that's there. There has been no fear of time. Maybe. Hang on. Fear of time passing. Fear yeah. Of fear time. of time passing. Ah. Fear of uh, the the ticking clock. I. I just, just like life and depression. Well, precisely. <laughs> maybe maybe the word was not said out loud because the the feeling that it captures is so omnipresent and yeah. overwhelming that we'd never thought to give it a name. It's very dark. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this is the chat we're having on the tram. <laughs> and this is within 30 seconds of not having a phone. Wow. 
Were they tourists or you didn't get to that? I, I didn't get to that. I, they too, seemed pretty cool. I don't think they were tourists. Too, be, too busy <laughs> discussing existential. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was, a, it was a man and a woman. And then I, then I put my head down and started reading because I'm yeah. like, oh, I don't want them to feel trapped with me. Oh, you know, like oh, time so is a flat circle. How else has your life changed without your phone? Do you feel free of all the people in how your life? How did you get up this morning? Uh, I had I set an alarm on another device. Right. Oh, yeah. What device? Well, an iPad. Oh, mm. okay. okay. I thought you were going to say your microwave. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I don't know why I was so coy about what oh, the yeah. device was. <laughs> Like, uh, oh, was it a Kindle? Did you have a laugh? And then now it's like, now I'm going to go back to get it after the show and I feel like the adventure will be over. Yeah, I feel like you need to oh. do more between now and yeah, then all right. to be yeah. free of the phone and then report back. Yeah, I might write a book or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, I went to footy training yesterday. The final one? Is this <clears> right <throat> for the Community Cup? <coughs> Excuse me, there's one more tonight. Um, like we have a, a, a group, um, like both the train. Is this the one down together. that happens at Vic Park? Oh, we were at Vic Park yesterday. Oh. I don't actually. I've got to look up where training is tonight. <laughs> I don't know where it is. <laughs> I'll find out. I Google it on my phone. Yeah. But. <laughs> but I went to um, a, a meet at Vic Park. They had it um, at. Uh, I went to pub footy. They had pub footy there on on Saturday Sick. afternoon. So I went down there with a few other megahertz. And then, um, yeah, that's what training got changed. She was, was supposed to train like over in Brunswick. But then they went, oh, actually, there was something else happening there. Like, oh, we're going to have to come here. And I'm like in my mind going, yes, yes. Because you live next door to Vic yes, Park. because I can just walk down. I still drive. Um, Do you feel more confident now playing? How's the training going? Yeah, really good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, my so back's not exciting. sore anymore. Brilliant. I've fixed that. Fixed it. Thanks to all your training that you gave me. Oh, wow. And my stretches. Um, so that's all good. So I feel good. Uh, I feel so unfit. And I've got to get my um, – I've got to get another puffer, I reckon, for my asthma. Like I have, like I have like exercise-induced asthma. <clears throat> Actually, I have everything-induced <laughs> <laughs> But it's, you know, it gets, if I run, it like just wreaks havoc on my lungs. And, oh. you know, I guess it, yes, I, I'm probably unfit as well, but it just, you know, it doesn't help with my asthma. So, can you keep a pump in your pocket on the oh, day yeah, when you're yeah, playing? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, cool. I'll do that. I'll do that. I just, because I, I just normally survive on just having like a, my preventer. I have very well um, controlled asthma until I have to oh. go for a run. Mm. Um, so, I'll just, I'll, I'll have. I'll have my Ventolin. Two okay. puffs before I go on and then probably ten puffs. D- does the sound of you wheezing minutes. stress you out? Like, no. And so you wheeze more or it's fine? No, no, it doesn't. It might freak someone else out, but I'm... You uh, should use that to your advantage. Yeah. <laughs> it's the new pinching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. old strats. Uh, but, yeah, other than that, I, yeah, had a, had a reasonably fun weekend. Oh, that's it. That's good. Yeah, I went to the pub, got stuck at the pub. That was a delight. I I saw you upload a photo yesterday from the pub saying that you had to stay there and drink an extra bottle because it started raining. How delightful. Yeah, and it just had a perfect seat by the window. You know, and just seeing the traffic. How Melbourne? Just sitting there drinking, looking at the rain. Is that what the photo was of? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, you're so smug. (laughs) (laughs) Three triple R. 
Acclaimed filmmaker Richard Lowenstein directed the majority of music videos for Michael Hutchins and In Excess and the 1986 feature film Dogs in Space in which Michael played the lead. His new documentary Mystify, Michael Hutchins, opens in cinemas Thursday 4th of July and he joins us now. Richard, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi. Hi. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on the film. It's uh, mesmerising. Uh, why this project for you now? Um, <clears throat> it's sort of, I think enough time had gone by since um, Michael died to, um, to actually sort of uh, emotionally disconnect a little from and, and try to give an objective view of, you know, the person who he really was rather than the sort of cliches that seemed to be out there in the media. There, there was, because of the way he looked in the 80s, the long hair and, the, you know, sort of the loose rock star, there mm. seemed to be a lot of... Um, we, we don't know him, but we'll look at an episode of Entourage and that must be him, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it was, yeah, it was getting uh, quite annoying to, um, you know, family and friends and um, and not sort of annoying, but it's just, it just seemed like nothing accurate would be left behind apart from the sensationalism. And also, all Michael Hutchins aside, I just found it a fascinating, almost a Greek tragedy of a story, almost, you know, of an unknown rock star. If you, if you don't know In Excess or Michael or, or anything, you can just be absorbed in the film as a sort of a cautionary tale or as, a, you know, as, a, as an examination of, of what, um, what, an unknown, what a young, shy boy gets caught up with if they're uh, you know, lucky or unlucky enough to become a rock star. It's a, a super compelling film and you kind of put it together chronologically through the eyes of each one of, of many of his romantic relationships. Hmm. What made you choose to do that? Well, I'd sort of seen a lot of, you know, rock docs and um, biopics and everything. And um, and usually the sort of, you know, the role of the girlfriend in these things is sort of a thankless, hmm. a sort of thankless role. It's, it's usually someone relatively pretty who's just there to be the life partner or to, you know, and to the main narrative thread that ties this sort of very sporadic life together and and you never really got a sense of who those characters were but but also in this in this case it's the intimate girlfriends and the sort of mother figures of of personal managers and things who actually knew the real michael because from even my perspective as a close friend and as I interviewed some of the other male close friends, you sort of realise that, um, you know, Australian males don't really communicate all that well with each other. <laughs> what a and, surprise. <laughs> and, never, and never really find out who they, each other, actually are. They sort of lots of fun times and war stories and remember the time we, you know, had all these drugs or, or whatever. But... Um, it was it was the girlfriends who woke up with him and went to sleep with him and saw him, you know, upset and curled up in the fetal position, as Kylie describes, and things that actually could put together a picture of the person that I actually knew kind of by osmosis, you know. I mean, I, I never sat down in, what, 15 years I knew him and said, you know, tell us about your childhood. You know, you just sort of go, what are we doing next? What, what, <laughs> you know. And he always felt with, with his male friends that he had to put on a show, like, like I'm here for three days, I've got to um, give my friend Richard or Greg Pirano or whatever um, a, a window into what it was like being a rock star. So he would sort of give you these great sort of 
event moments and times but never really sort of sitting down and you know until something bad happened towards the end and then you would sort of burst into tears on your lap and things like that there are no talking heads in this film it's just wall-to-wall archival footage really Mm. how can you talk us through that process of collating all of that video and sifting through it well, yeah, we had um, a variety of sources. We, uh, there's obviously the commercial sources, but then um, I, I, my mother was a librarian, so I, I had an attic full of, you know, music video outtakes from the 80s because I just obsessively would, would keep the film, saying, you know, well, film is archive material and we should keep it. No one else seems to want it. Bands certainly didn't want it. So I knew I had that, and then I then uh, I knew certain um, family and and close friends would have um, video of the time. It was sort of went through almost like an archaeological history of the vi- of the home video formats, going from VHS C, I think, is the little cassette to Video Eight to no Mini beta. DV. So no beta. No, but there was actually beta. <laughs> Donnie, the Donny Sutherland interview was was beta. It was a beta oh. tape. We had to look on eBay and buy an old oh, beta wow. machine. Not not beta SP, but beta. <laughs> and uh, so when you see that Donny Sutherland tape, that's it's actually better quality than VHS. So um, you know we had everything. Super eight, uh, sixteen mil. Michael one stage had a. Um, a Bolex, a hand-wound 16mm camera oh, that was wow. made in the 50s that he saw um, us make the music videos with one because every Swinburne student back then would get on the trading <laughs> post and, and buy this buy this $300 hand-wound Bolex because you could shoot 16mm. So he said, I want one of them. But I said the same. He saw me making a video and said, I want one of them as well. And so I became this sort of dealer of <laughs> Bolexes to the rock star. <laughs> And so what was amazing about that was that um, Michael, you know, being really flaky, would would uh, go away on holidays and would come back with these rolls of little Kodak yellow rolls and just throw them at me and saying, you know, you're making the next video, put these in the soup and, and give me a tape. And so I'd make him a VHS tape, but all the film of those holidays wow. ended up in my attic and I'd totally forgotten. And they were marked, you know, Max-Q or something. And then the, the guy doing the scanning, Ray Argel, um, he would ring me up and saying, I'm, f- I'm doing these Max-Q rushes and that's all fine, but then suddenly there's all this Kylie and Michael on a boat, you know, in, this, in Hong Kong Harbour. And I'm going, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so and the, the... um. The making of the Max Q album, that was all on... Michael had filmed all that, just on his 16mm. So that it sort of... It became very obvious that the intimate home movie footage was going to be the star and not so much the commercial archive. Mm. But there was still a hell of a lot of it. So we're sort of... You know, we've got a whole team, Lynn-Marie Milburn, Taylor Martin and uh, Andrew DeGroote, who, you know, the three of... Andrew, me and Lynn have been running the company and owning the company and since the very first in excess or since Hunters and Collectors talking to a stranger with the three of us been together. So we, the, the, the four of us, because we roped in a new editor, Taylor, just go through all this footage, you know, hours and hours and again and again because as the new subjects appear, you say, look at all that again and try and find something that where he talks about this or... There was radio interviews too. That radio interviews and journalists' audio cassettes in noisy restaurants. That's oh, kind of yeah. what saved us, you know. 
how, how emotional was that process for you, though, as a friend of Michael's? I know you said you've waited a long time to do this, but I remember interviewing um, Brett Morgan, who did the montage of Heck film about Kurt yeah, Cobain yeah. a few years ago. And when I spoke to him about it, he'd been talking about that film for two years and he started crying again because he yes, just becomes yes. so emotional. And yes. you were a friend of Michael's. Like, what was that process like? Um... You're trying to make me cry. No, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you no, no, I'm joking. No, I, I, I think there was, you know, the 20 years helped with a emotional sort of um, objectivity. Yeah. Um, I think there was um, a, a bit of, a few tears um, at the very end when we realised we actually had made it, you know. There, there was um, very many uh, obstacles to overcome without going into... Um, gory details but there's like huge hurdles about the music rights about footage rights and um the budget the um, would we have the budget to get the best footage you know from mtv there's some crucial interviews that mtv had and then they're not cheap so once we finally after you know it was literally eight to ten years of work Mm. and two years of paid work and um once we finally got there i think that first screening um Possibly just in the preview theatre when we're testing the first print of it. That's when I got a bit emotional. Oh, you're going to make me cry <laughs> now. Are you also, and, and, and one of the Q&As, I sort of... Um, someone asked, you know, uh, what what does the film really mean? And I sort of, I sort of, you know, just came out that I think it is a bit of an apology to Michael for not noticing mm. that, especially after his um, assault and in Copenhagen, not sort of noticing and doing more when you notice something is mm. wrong in someone and you especially, you know, the f- a famous person, you feel not really in the um, able to sort of say, hey, you should see a doctor about that or you should, you know. Mm. And so I, I guess partly the film is an apology, but, it, you know, the, the main reason was, was a historical one. My, my mother was an oral historian and I just felt that, you know, if no-one told this story, no-one would, would tell the real story, you know. And your relationship with Michael Hutchins, you, you weren't exactly an NXS fan straight away, were you? No, no. <laughs> Probably still not an NXS fan. <laughs> especially after two years of hearing their music again and again and again. But I got my favourite songs, you know, and some... And, you know, one of them, ironically, is Mystify, which they never offered me a... a, You know, they sort of send you a cassette and they say, which songs do you want to make a music video? Which song can you make a hit for, you know, or or can we win MTV awards with? And you sort of... I remember that album, Kick, and I said, um, Need You Tonight, Never Tear Us Apart and Mystify. And so I got to do the first two, but I didn't get the third one. So the film is kind of revenge, I think, against... (laughs) Against the band saying, you know, why didn't you give me that I video? I could have done it better. Yeah. Yes, but, um, you know, it's... Um, I, I sort of became a fan of especially the perform, the live performance. You know, we sort of... I mean, I was I was at the very first Hunters and Collectors gig and I was sort of going, you know, looking at them as like an orchestra that was about 20 of them and going, you know, this would be great to film. And then, and I never thought I would be, you know, saying that about a uh, In Excess show, which I'd, you know, heard about this Sydney band. But after a few times of going to see Michael do his stuff, you know, you sort of, you, could, you really sort of fell in love with his stage performance and the and the way, you know, 
well, they all worked together, but really he was the centre, he was the key that, that you know, really put on a, a performance that I'd never really seen before, you know. You also made the film Dogs in Space with Michael, which I've got to ask you about for Triple R listeners because mm. I think that film still holds a really special place in a lot of people's hearts. Mm. I was a baby when that came out and my, I still remember my sister taking me as a teenager to the house and going, oh, right. so this is this film that you have to watch and this is what this house means. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, how do you feel about that as a piece of work, you know, 30 years on from it? I feel a bit... Um I feel a bit worried that I, I got so many people at the Q&As coming up with old VHS, well, actually new VHS cassettes, and I'm sort of going, we restored it and it's on DVD, can you get a DVD? And there's literally new VHS cassettes. I've had, I've had more new VHS cassettes to sign than, than DVDs or anything. And I'm going, who has a VHS player anymore? <laughs> really? Do you want to answer But, um, yeah, no, I... I um, you know, Michael. Michael really. Um, actually, the, the funny story is that I was a huge fan of the band, the original band that's in Dogs in Space, called the Ears, with Sam Sajafka. And I remember going to the Crystal Ballroom once back in the day, and some friends rushing down. So the Ears were playing downstairs. There were two venues, upstairs and downstairs. The Ears were playing downstairs, and I had these friends rush down saying, "Go and look upstairs. There's a guy imitating Sam." Who's <laughs> He's downstairs, you know, and so we're going, okay, we better go and see this guy imitating Sam. <laughs> and and there seemed to be very similar mannerisms going on from Sam uh, Sajafka to Michael. And then, weirdly enough, sort of when the whole concept came up of Dogs in Space, I knew my, um, Michael at that stage and I just thought he was the perfect choice to play Sam. And, and also, I'd, by that stage, I'd really um, become aware of his powers of mimicry and his, sort of, and his screen magnetism. But his, it was really around dinner tables where he would imitate all the other band members and his manager and sometimes <laughs> me. And, um, and he would just have us all in stitches and I sort of, you know, um, my, my brain's clicking over like, this guy be a good actor one day, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> he did have this ability to pick up your personal attributes and just throw it back at you in a in a very amusing way, you know. Uh, Michael would be approaching his 60th birthday. Mm. Uh, were he with us? What do you think his cultural contribution would be now? Were we lucky enough to have him? Well, I think, um, you know, I think he would have done a few more solo albums. I think he was very um, keen to work again with Ollie Olsen and do another Max Q album. That's that's literally Ollie, in, in Ollie's interview for the film, said, you know, he got a phone call three weeks before he, Michael died and... Um, and said, let's let's get the Max Q together again and do a, something else. I, I mean, I think he would still be playing within excess. I think they probably would have broken up for a year or so mm. and then gotten back together. I mean, there was something, even though there was frustrations and ups and downs, as there are with any family that's sort of um, forced to be together for, you know, 20, 30 years, there was... You know, different motivations and some had families and Michael definitely wanted to... You know, be a be a bohemian, live a nomadic lifestyle. But I I do think um, there would have been this sort of great um, legacy of live music shows that that he would have, would have had. I'm not I'm not quite sure if there would have been further albums as good as Kick or whatever. I I think um, I think their back catalogue would have been a very important part of their performance. And but you know, he he still would have been playing sort of 
packed arenas and everything. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if they ever would have gone to state to a stadium level. You know, it's like an, um, at one stage there in the late 80s, they could have gone and done what you two had done, but that's when all this sort of drama and personal stuff um, started to happen. And also they... they you two sort of very cleverly um, handled the uh, the grunge era in the 90s and mm. sort of went to Berlin and kind of reinvented themselves with extra content and everything. And I'm not quite sure that that uh, In Excess were going to do the same thing. And, I mean, they definitely could have tried and everything, and who knows. But I... Um, you know, I, I think they they would have been still together and still playing. I mean, Michael was addicted to that. Even though, he, you know, there might have been complaints, he was addicted to that energy he got when, you know, the six of them all got together and played those songs and he really sort of lost himself in them all. Wow. Well, uh, the, the documentary captures so much. It's uh, Mr Fire, Michael Hutchins. It opens in cinemas Thursday, 4th of July, and we've been speaking with uh, its director, uh, Richard Lowenstein. Richard, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank thanks you. Thanks a lot. You're in Three triple. Ah. Uh, I had um, uh, a slightly busy night last night. Ooh, what kind of busy? Oh, I just had two things on. <laughs> Sorry, uh, had a lot on. A lot. I just realised we're wearing the exact same coloured jumper. Sorry, Mine's that's not very good for radio, is it? No, that's all right. But we'll get a photo of that later. <laughs> I, I can tell the difference between you. It's yeah. fine. Okay, good. that's all that counts. <laughs> Um, but I um, so we had last night was the uh, we had a group training with the um, the megahertz and the rock dogs. This so is like the, the final training, isn't it, before the fi- day? Final training before the day. Now, because this is this is my first time playing in the community cup, and I'll be honest, I'm a bit stressed about it. Yeah, always have been, and it's really coming to you know a head because it's it's happening on Sunday. Um, get your tickets here, haven't got them already. But I think also because I had, you know, I was conscious that I had to leave early for training and um, had other things to do. So I was just kind of already a little bit stressed before going to the thing. And and also because it's my first time, I don't know what... I don't know things. I know the way that you're <laughs> feeling because the first time I played, the one and only time I played... Yeah. I just remember going, is there a time when someone tells me what I'm meant to be doing? Yeah. Yeah. Like, when do I, how do I get to the ground? Where yeah. am I playing? Is someone going to tell me what to do when I play? Mm, yeah, it's, it's really so, confusing. Because I think everyone's so used to, you know, being a part and being in that world. Yeah. And, and knowing everything and knowing what the protocol is and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure if I did some thorough research. Yes. All the information that I need would probably would come up. Yes, but the fact I don't want to have to do thorough research. No. Anyway, so because so, like even yesterday, I was like, you know, I, I knew there was a training last night, but then all of a sudden, halfway through the day, I was like, I don't know where that training is. I did say to you in the morning, "Where's the training tonight?" Yeah. And you went, "I actually have no idea." <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll, look, I'll look that up, and I, you know, would get on the normal, you know, the Facebook page and look it up, and it's just like, "Yeah, guys, we've got training on Monday." 
okay and I, I had to like send a post saying listen I, look I know I'm probably everyone already knows this but um where is it <laughs> where I, I'm sure it's written somewhere but yeah. I, I I've I've kind of done a little bit of research but I have not found where training is and they go oh God, yeah it's here like you know, okay yeah I'm sure everyone knows that but I don't um but it, the ground that it was at though so I'm like oh that's fine I you know I put it in. I left so early because I was like, I'm going to get a sandwich on the way because <laughs> I haven't, uh, you know, had – I just thought I'll get something in – I hadn't had lunch and stuff. So I was just like, I'll just get a sandwich on the way. So I left quite early and I was like, I'm going to be there in heaps of time so I can sit there and eat my sandwich in the car and then go and get ready for training. And then Google Maps took me to – yes, it took me to the ground, but it take me to, like, this separate entrance to the ground where I was coming in through, like, a staff gate and it had, like, a oh. staff only. And I was like, oh, I went in there and I'm like, this this doesn't feel right. Yeah, you're not it's, staff, are Yeah, you? and I'm like, it's a footy ground. I will just drive around to the other side of the oval and I'll park around there. But it just seemed like this footy oval was in Narnia and Narnia, and you had to go through a tram depot to get to Narnia. And it was just – and because I'd go, I'll just drive around and see – and because it was dark, I could – and it's also, all fenced in. There's something about when you get that little – you know that first bit of panic that enters your stomach? It makes everything very difficult. Oh, I know man. that feeling because it defines my life so much. I was, the simplest yes. things become really <laughs> – I was so relaxed to begin with because I had heaps of time. I'm like, that's right, I'll just drive around. And then after like probably three attempts at trying to find another entry point into this oval, I went, I'm just going through the staff. Oh, okay. The staff gate. And I just kind of, I drove it and I just drove further and realised you could just drive right and I found another couple and I'm like I just go and park up on this hill with these other cars and like I'm right there so was it a toasted sandwich like what was the state of the no, sandwich so at this point no I'd eaten it already <laughs> <laughs> I ate it while I was driving no problem stress <laughs> yeah. stress eating yeah yeah it's an automatic car that's why that's why I drive automatic um so and then so by the time I got to training it was like this oh man and you know when you you know you trying to express to someone how annoyed you are or maybe this is just me but I go where the f is this like this is place is really hard to find like and then because I'm so kind of stressed out and angry it's hilarious <laughs> so people just go ah, ha, ha. Well, actually it's just shorty it's just Rachel short <laughs> thinking it's hilarious she goes what are you doing hey we just park around there it's so easy well, you just come in off St George's Road there it is and I'm like <sighs> anyway, okay, yep, thank you. <laughs> and then so I've got this that. This is the last thing I need to hear right now. <laughs> I've got that, you know, oh, I just, I can't even find the place. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I, I was getting um, photos taken while they started doing warm-ups and they had a couple of, um, I think they were AFL players and some AFL staff, coaches, support staff. Yeah. Um, people there to run, run us through some warm-ups um, but I missed all of the the lead up to like explaining what everything oh, was. This but is also, your worst nightmare. Oh, oh, no. my, oh. And then I come out and I'm like, oh, I can see what they're doing here. And I kind of joined in on one. And then we went to the next one. And uh, it's just the the briefest of explanations of what's going on. And they're like, oh, yeah, just go and stand on the cone. And, uh, yeah, just handball it. And I'm like... 
and then just like make sure you're using names and stuff but it's like because it's the rock dogs and because i'm like I don't know. I'm just <laughs> yelling. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Wow. And people think it's funny because it's you. Oh, yeah. The losing, and I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I really need help. <laughs> yeah. Someone help me. And I just, I just had enough having to go, oh, I can't, I can't do this. I just walked away from it. I just went, I can't. I've got no concept of what's know, happening Can I, you know what makes me feel better? It's that is how I felt the entire. Game? T- the entire game and the entire yeah. last training that we had. The one, the exact one that you're talking about, yeah. where you go to an oval and there's AFL footballers there. I felt confused, and everyone said used names, and I thought I don't know half the rock yeah. dogs' names. So I was just going was 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 was. Oh, Raz, 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 Because everyone turns when you just do a general kind of It's so good to know. Oh, mate. It actually makes me feel, it's something really wonderful and human about finding out that you're not the only one that feels like that yeah. in those situations. Yeah, and then I stress out about saying the wrong name and then all of a sudden there's a ball in someone's face. I'm like, oh, I cannot, I can't deal with it. And then, So did and you I, get to the end of training? Or did you just, no, I had to oh. leave. Yeah, I had to leave early, and I think that's the other thing that was stressing me out as well. I'm, I'm, I'm used to coming to training, and you get there like you know half an hour early. You know, like get there at nine thirty for a ten o'clock start or yeah. whatever. Um, but this one was like get there at six for a six thirty start. But from and and that first half an hour, you're kind of out on on the over, like kicking the footy to each other or doing some stretches or just standing around doing a bit of a chat and stuff. But this night, though, everyone's in the change room and I'm like, what are we doing? Like, what's happening? <laughs> oh, my God. When are we going out? I'm like, just, I'm conscious that I've got to go and I haven't kicked a footy yet, you know, and I was just like, I can't handle this, right? And then, so I, I did have to leave early and I flagged that with everyone that I could mention it to. I'm like, I've got to leave early. got to leave. Come on, let's go. Um... And then, so I got to, I went from one drill to another and they started talking about this drill and I'm like, nah, I'm out. (laughs) I left earlier. I just went, I can't, I cannot cope with another, like, and also it's like this, they'll do these drills. Like there was one drill where they did was like, okay, so there's there's like a brief explanation and then they go, just go, right? And then it just becomes a, all the fellas know what they're doing and, like, there was one, seriously, it was one where it was, like, everyone's running around handballing it to each other, but it was just the men handballing it to each other and running through. The women on the side just going, what's happening? What's going on? This is this is high school all over again. When, you know. Well, now you know in the future, just yell out, was, 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 was. It was just, and then so it's this other handballing intense moment, and I was just like, I can't, I'm, I'm out, I'm not doing this, I've got to go, I've got to go, and, and I was just like, I, I do have to go anyway. And then I, I get in the car, and I drive around to my special entrance point, and uh, realise that yeah, it was a staff entrance, and they've closed the gates. Oh no! <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> just like, oh, and I, I cannot tell you how calm oh, I was about this. Well, <laughs> yeah, I just went. Well, I mean, something's got to happen. And th- if if no one else was around, I'd be okay. And of course, I drive back and I park the car again and I go back down to. Oh my god! This Dave so and this, <laughs> Dave and Rachel's there, and I'm like. How do I get out of here? <laughs> and Rachel loses it. And they're like, you just go through that gate over there. And I'm like, all right, I'll do a bit of four-wheel driving. Because, <laughs> yeah, you just drive around the oval. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sure everyone knows this. But once again, I do not. And um, thank you for your help and assistance. So I made it out. <laughs>
3 triple R. Bella is an award-winning artist, curator, writer and lecturer with over 20 years' experience in First Nations community arts. She's appearing tomorrow, opening night, at the Emerging Writers Festival in an event titled Speaking Truth to Power, and she joins us, joins us now. Paola, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Speaking Truth to Power, what is your approach to this theme and what, what can the audience expect? Uh, I, I like to think that... Most of the time I'm pretty honest in my work uh, generally, so I was really excited um, to get the invite from um, Izzy Roberts-Orr at, at um, Emerging Writers Festival. Um, and I think the, the other speakers as well who are fabulous, it's uh, Vicky Cousins and, and Eugenia um, Flynn are also very honest women. And I, I think, you know, as Aboriginal women, we, we kind of have to be <laughs> because there's so much, um, you know, BS that we have to speak back to. So I think being honest is kind of at the core of it. But... Also, you know, injecting a bit of humour and, you know, black black humour. Mm. It's always good. That's why I wore my Daryl Breathwaite tribute jacket. I was going to say, <laughs> I can't believe I haven't commented on the fact that you're wearing a horse jacket. I wish people could see this. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's for radio, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it, oh, no, we'll get a pic of that. Don't <laughs> worry. Thank you. All right. It, it, is, <laughs> it is made out of Tyvek, which is... What uh, is that? Tyvek is what, you know, like festival wristbands are made out of. You oh, know that papery stuff? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is the... Tyvek, so it's a top quality um, uh, medical grade Tyvek that also like medical grade and science suits, hazmat suits and that are made ah. out of it. So I got, I got this in New York in January from this really um, overpriced, you know, vintage op shop um, and it's covered in horse heads and, because I love horses and I seriously... I'm. That's what makes it Daryl Braithwaite. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, uh, speaking about truth, many Aboriginal people, my people in the community, love the song Horses by Daryl Braithwaite. Is that right? Yes, it is. And I'll challenge anyone. <laughs> I'll challenge anyone who says that I'm stereotyping because it's it's one of the truths of our community. We love country music and we love Horses by Daryl Braithwaite. I never knew that. Yeah. That's so. what, that's one of the truths that will be explored tomorrow night. <laughs> yes. Um, what, what, are, what are some of the uh, repercussions in your experience of speaking truth to power? Oh, um, people argue that horses isn't a good song. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an anthem. I think that should actually be our anthem. Um, <laughs> Um, no, look, it's it's risky for Aboriginal women to tell the truth, you know, because um, we're at the forefront of you know of of the fight often and uh and and leading many of the you know the movements in in the city and around the country um regarding you know aboriginal human rights but yeah it's very risky for aboriginal women to speak back it always has been you know historically um you know throughout invasion and and the genocidal practices that keep getting enacted on us in in waves really mm. um so it's it's risky um and there's times i i do worry about you know my own well-being and burnout and what it means to keep telling the truth publicly it's it's risky work yeah. mm. uh, well, and what's your uh, approach to matriarchy that's a that keeps coming up in um your discussions it seems mm-hmm. um well because i was i was raised by um you know, really strong uh, Aboriginal Koori women in Victoria, um, matriarchs. So our culture is predominantly matriarchal um, in Victoria. Many Koori communities are matriarchal. Um, but also, you know, our community is very respectful of our patriarchy as well, our Aboriginal male elders and uncles. And, and I I certainly had um, incredible great uncles who were very loving, gentle um, 
you know, people in my life. Um, but I was raised, you know, by matriarchs and many um, in my community, many single Aboriginal mothers, um, you know, raising kids. And so it was a way of teaching your culture and your place in the world. So, you know, sort of um, academically speaking, it's your standpoint theory. It's how, how you know the world, how you place yourself in the world. And um, um, because I'm in, in PhD mode too, um, you know, I often cite uh, Professor um, Aileen Morton Robinson and she talks about moving towards this Aboriginal feminist standpoint theory uh, and and that encompasses matriarchy um so that's in an academic sense. In a personal sense, it really comes from my mum and my nan, um, uh, Margie and Rosie, and my great-grandmother, Nanny Nancy, and my great-great-grandmother. So they're very, even though they're all gone except for my mum, they're very alive. So that they're things that they teach about genealogy, how you're related to others, um, how you situate yourself, how you handle yourself. Um, so there's a cultural knowledge that gets passed down, and then there's the knowledge of how to deal with colonisation. What do you consider the most important truths for you to be talking about right now? Um, for me, at almost every speaking opportunity I get and publicly is to remind people that Aboriginal women are the fastest growing incarcerated group in the country at the moment. Um, that our children are being removed at a higher rate now than during the stolen generations. That's what the latest statistics are saying. And in Victoria alone, the numbers between, I think it's 1,700 and 2,000, Koori kids are in out-of-home care right now. Um, and the women that are inside too, our sisters inside, are there for crimes that they shouldn't be in jail for. They're not, they're not crimes, you know. These are they're women who are trying to survive and um, the law is uh, systematically and, and structurally biased against us and that's why we end up in jail because of our Aboriginality. And, and that was found in the um, Aboriginal, uh, the Royal Inquiry into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, that one of the predominant factors for our being incarcerated is because we're Aboriginal. It's that geared against us that it's almost inevitable, you know, in some cases. Mm. Well, something like the Royal Commission is, I guess, a good example of where all these truths were told but little action has come from it as of mm -hmm. yet. Little change. How do you convert truth telling mm. and those kinds of things you've just spoken about which are so huge and important how do you convert that into into change mm. that, i mean well that's the challenge for us all the time isn't it yeah like, um you know i often think what what you know what do i do with these opportunities i get to speak publicly why why does it keep coming to me you know it shouldn't so, all be on you either mm, no well, and there's there's so many of us who are doing this work um you know as aboriginal women in particular in, in public you know platforms um most of us are really caring about sharing those opportunities with others. So often, you know, inviting other sisters in to take it up instead or I'll say no, I'll say no a lot because that's necessary as well to yeah. make sure other people get invited because, um, you know... Your lovely white followers get comfortable with a couple of us, and you keep inviting us back. So I keep saying, yeah. "There's more of us," you know. <laughs> I appreciate it, um, and I, I said the same thing at um, the Stella Prize Award, uh, which was back in April. I really appreciated speaking there for the second time. But I said, "Invite another Aboriginal woman, like um, get comfortable with more of us," mm. you know. Women yeah. quite often um, get accused of being emotional and stuff, but mm -hmm. I think with the the truth that you speak about, I emotion i can't help but have emotion in there as well and it's like how can you not be angry and do you find it hard to um kind of you know speak not be angry about it in in, in the way that you talk about it yeah i often think about that i actually really respect my anger 
Mm. I used to worry about it. I used to think that it it, it made me um, unpleasant to be around. And I, th- I think uh, for my partner it might have been for a while as a white fella. You know, I often <laughs> give him a lot and he takes a lot. Um, I One therapist that I saw, you know, because, you know, as a black woman, if you can access it and you're ready to do it um, and you can get responsive, respectful therapy... You need it for the traumas that you carry with you, and and I certainly did. And one of them taught me to see my anger as a person, as a as a live creature, and to sit them on a chair in the corner of the room and say, "I can see you, I respect you, and I value you." So instead of treating it as if you know, because in the white world, you know, anger's really avoided and being polite, yeah. valued, and all that rubbish, you know. So I really respect my anger, um, and a lot of great um, activists and, and matriarchs around me taught me that anger is very valuable valuable and powerful and it doesn't have to be negative you know but it's hard not to be bitter I think that's Yes. Yeah, I get yeah. a bit, yeah. You're a curator, writer, you say you're in PhD mode, you're also an artist. Mm-hmm. How do you split your brain into thinking what brings you the most joy and where you'll think you'll have the most impact? Yeah, it's funny that, um, and I'm a mum too, you know, like I was saying earlier, and my, my beautiful boy, Caton, he turned 15 yesterday. Happy birthday. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, I often think about how do I do stuff I I think I have the ability and it's strange I think a lot of the traumas I went through um, one of the things that I ended up experiencing is, is disassociation where you literally are splitting yourself from yourself and, mm. your, and your thinking and I've sort of taken skills if you like from that trauma to be able to think um, in sort of um, consecutive or parallel ways so I can sort of sit things across. But everything feeds each other for me. Like my writing and visual art feeds each other. Hmm. Mm. And then how does motherhood, uh, how do you feel that that feeds into your uh, your work and your the messages that you're propagating? Um, well, like many great women in this country, <laughs> as a mother... <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's just part of my life. Like, you know, it's... Uh, a lot in our community, being a young mum is really normal. So I had Rosie, who's 24 this year, um, you know, really talented daughter, Rosie Kleiner. I had her when I was 21. Um, and it was just a part of my life to get on with uni and to keep doing what I had to do with her. And um, it's just a part of your, you know, your life and your cultural skill set. I think as an Aboriginal woman, often not all of us have kids, but... Um, for me, there's just so much support and love around me to do it. It wasn't like, oh, you've had a child while you're at uni before you got married. What are you going to do now? Mm. It's none of that. It was just, oh my God, she's beautiful. Let us help you love this child. You know. Well, as you say, it's a, it's an honour to be opening the Emerging Writers Festival. Is there anything during the festival that you're looking forward to as a punter? Um, I'm I'm really enjoying seeing that. There's just so many young people of colour and so many women and so many Aboriginal speakers involved in this festival. I think that um, mainstream festivals are really picking up on our voices and we're being centred and we're being put at the front, which is really exciting. And I I really appreciate Melbourne because I think it's probably the best city in this country for us to be in. I mean, I'm really biased. I love Melbourne so much. Mm. I, I still get excited about living in this place. I get disheartened by a lot of things, but there's a lot of things that give me hope too and... And, um, yeah, and t- and also just speaking with Vicky Cousins and Eugenie Flint and 
you know, soju gang DJing. Yeah, yeah, there are beats tomorrow night. A bit of a party as well. So Paolo Bala is appearing opening night of the Emerging Writers Festival, which runs June 19 to 29. Uh, Tomorrow's event, Speaking Truth to Power, starts at 7pm at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Southbank. Entry is free, but bookings are essential. Go to emergingwritersfestival.org.au for all the details. Paolo, thanks for speaking with Breakfasters. Thank you. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. It's time for Food Interlude with the gastronomically gifted Michael Harden. Hi, Michael. <laughs> wow, that's that's that, that's the best intro yet. <laughs> uh, what's what's uh, got you? Uh, Focus this week, food wise. Well, I'm sort of at the end of um, it's the end of food reviewing season where because all of the guides are sort this of seasons. Yeah, oh. yeah. So, so all the guides. So I, I review for a couple of guides. So um, the gourmet traveler guide and also for the good food guide. And so they're all sort of just about closing now. So we've been eating a lot over the last. And so as well as oh, kind I of feel so flipped, sorry for I know, you. <laughs> Yeah, you flipped, I was flipping through my photos the other day and I was going, how is it possible that one human being can consume that many dishes in one week? But um, you also, it's really good for sort of focusing on sort of trends and what's happening around the traps and everything. Mm. And what I d- have noticed is that there's um, increasingly the amount of Indigenous meat, game meat, that's on menus around. And it's... You know, it's not a new thing. You know, kangaroo's been mm. around for a while. Everybody knows about that. But it's the way that it's being handled is becoming really, really interesting, I think. And it's sort of moving beyond that sort of um, bush tucker kind of, you know... Yeah. You know, it's not not a ser- not really taking it seriously. It's more more like a gimmick. But there's sort of these, these in- ingredients are now being treated seriously. So I had a little list of, like, some of the stuff that I've eaten um, over the last with it, including that. So I've had... Um, Emu liver pate with a Davidson plum jam on a bagel. Mm. I've had um, possum sausages. I've had saltwater crocodile ribs with a honey pepper glaze. Um, I've had um, magpie goose pie. And um, I've also had it had magpie goose sort of sliced and cooked like rare, like a magpie. like delicious no, magpie not mag goose. goose. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did listen to that. I did hear you that. You know what? I was and then my... went back to magpie. Yeah. and yeah. stopped there. Yeah, my yeah, brain did yeah. the exact same thing. Yes, whole magpie. Oh. You know? <laughs> no, magpie just goose. There are magpie goose which are they're yes. sort of native to the Northern Territory. So uh, and they're they're kind of a fantastic meat as well. Emu in various forms. Like I've had an emu spring roll. I've had emu emu ham all of this sort of stuff. And so I thought it's really interesting the way that people are actually have sort of worked out how to use Indigenous meat and the chefs are starting to really understand how to cook Indigenous mm. meat properly because it's not like regular meat that we, you know, sort of that comes from, you know, European style with, you know, beef and pork and all of and lamb and that sort of stuff. With Indigenous meat, it's sort of like it's usually the fat is very low in them. They're very lean. Like, say, kangaroo, for example, 2% fat. And so you have to be really, really careful when you're cooking it because otherwise it dries out completely and it gets very chewy and tough. And so that's why I think a lot of people have sort of shied away from it because we haven't really known how to handle it well. And I think this is what's been happening with this with chefs now using Indigenous meat and sort of really understanding it and cooking it properly. And so it's becoming sort of more part of the sort of general vernacular. So instead of being just a... You know, something that you do as you know a, a, a fun thing to do on the side. It's all sort of becoming an ingredient rather than a, an Australian Indigenous ingredient. It's just mm. another one part of the palette. Can you walk us through? Sorry, some of these 
dishes. The I mean, did you say possum sausages? Possum sausages. Yeah. I, is that legal? Yes. Right. Yeah, it is. So you can't you can't go out and strangle a possum that's on your veranda. Um, and then and then gut it and eat it. That's that's illegal because you can't eat possums in Victoria. But in Tasmania is where you're getting is where they're. It's the only place in Australia that it's, they're commercially um, farm. Well, they're not farm. They're all wild, but commercially harvested. Um, and uh, Tasmania is also the only place that you can have wallaby as well. Okay, and that's another thing. There's a lot of wallaby on menus at the moment, and mm. uh, used as I think I've eaten probably four or five different versions of wallaby tartare which is actually really fantastic because wallaby meat is really sweet and has a really, really fantastic texture. So I'd sort of like, you know, if there was, if I was given a beef and a wallaby tartare, I'd probably start leaning towards the wallaby. Okay. Particularly ah. somebody that knew what they were doing. What's emu like out of interest? Emu is really interesting meat. It's, um, it's quite gamey. It's sort of on the sort of beef end of the spectrum, I would say, but you can't... Emu's really tricky in that if it's an older bird, it becomes very tough. And so a lot of the emu that I've been eating has been... Um, you, it's sort of in form of sort of a prosciutto or a ham or something like that. I had really delicious emu ham um, at a place in South Melbourne called Lume. And they sort of like... They, it was wrapped around um, grassini and things like that, like, oh. a, like a prosciutto. And it's, got, it's quite a strong flavor but it's sort of a, it's sort of it's it doesn't quite get to beef it's sort of a little under that and a little sweet but it's uh it's a really good it's a really good meat i think for those those sort of things so and what, what about the magpie goose magpie goose is um then native to northern territory the good story about the, the magpie goose it was sort of first appeared on restaurant menus like of course indigenous people have been eating it for 40,000 years but um it started appearing on uh, um restaurant menu in Adelaide, a restaurant called Arana, this guy called Jocks on Frio. And uh, he has used it there. And the interesting thing about that is that he's gone into partnership with Indigenous communities so that they're sort of now becoming in the loop. And so um, Indigenous communities in Northern Territory, like the magpie goose for farmers, was considered a pest because it would attack crops and stuff like that. But now they've got this industry where the Indigenous people go in and they, they're allowed to trap um, a certain amount of birds and uh, actually can't keep up with demand because it's a, it's a really good meat. It's, like, it's quite close to duck hmm. in terms of its flavour. And so that's been, that's been happening. But I think this is the interesting thing, this new wave of looking after Indigenous meat, is that the sh- it's sort of chef-driven. So in a li- way it's sort of like... I guess couture in fashion where sort of at the high end they do these sort of, you know, amazing things with, you know, in this case food, you know, and they're sort of fancying it up and they've got, you know, lots of hours worth of process to get it to certain points. But it starts to filter down the chain so it becomes a more regular thing. So, How long do you think it'll be before, like, our local cafe is serving up? you know these different kind of i think we're getting close i think we're really getting close because the thing is that you know with say kangaroo Mm. which is the one that everybody knows and it's in supermarkets it's been a bit of a success story but as i was saying people it's it's tricky to cook if you throw it on the barbecue it's going to end up like a bit of old leather Mm. so people like when you've eaten it in other forms in a pie or whatever you see that it can be done otherwise so i think it's filtering down also with kangaroo they've got because it's it's been commercially successful, they've got now... There's a company in South Australia called Paru, and um, 
they're able to they're only shooting a particular um, species of kangaroos so it's only red kangaroos it's only male kangaroos they're only three to three and a half years old and they're only from particular areas so mm. the consistency of the meat now is much much better because in the in the former days that like there's four different species of kangaroo that can be shot commercially um, but they're from all over. There's like a thousand different areas across Australia where they were coming from. So they were all eating different things and they were, you know, there was less water, more water and everything. And so there was no consistency in the meat. So you could get kangaroo one day that sort of had this really sort of strong, peppery, eucalypty flavour and then you'd get it another day and it was sort of like more, you know, delicate and subtle. So now with these companies doing it and sort of like really sort of going like this is a consistent product that you're going to get that's this kind of um, meat, people can use it more and they sort of can be, it's more reliable when they're using it in restaurant dishes. So is there kind of a more careful approach then to, I'm not going to say farming these animals, but as soon as something becomes popular, obviously the issues, ethical issues arise about how that meat is being obtained. I think it's actually, this is one case where I think the commercialisation is better. Um, because there's more focus on it and so it's highly restricted and you've got parks and wildlife are involved in this because it's all like all kangaroo and you know wallaby and most of them they're all free range there's no farming like emus really and crocodiles are really the only ones that you're farming everything else is wild Mm. so it's free range it's organic you know all of those sort of things but they're also closely monitored by parks and wildlife so say in a population of 50 million kangaroos um, they're allowed to usually it averages around 15 percent um is uh, culled every year so it's sort of quite carefully managed and um they've got um you know, their, their, their standard is, which sounds fairly brutal, but is the best way to do it, is um, brain shot instant death. So yeah, they're kind okay. of, they're, they're like, say, Paru, one of their, their things that they do is that they go, we only employ these hunters. And they're the hunters that are like the real marksmen that can, like, you know, they'll kill it, kill the beast, um, you know, with one shot every time. Mm. So it's not that kind of, um, you know, sort of like, yahoos in a truck you know going around blasting things so it's like because i think when the product becomes monetarily worthwhile that's sort of like it's it's more it's more valuable and so it's treated better so i think you know you know there's like a thousand moral knots to untie there but you know yeah (laughs) of course yeah yeah but uh it actually it's sort of like from from what i can see it's sort of like it's a better scheme for the for the animals in and many ways. Is, so. is the ethical procurement of food becoming a, a bigger feature of your food reviews? Yeah, yeah, it is actually. It's sort of, it's one of the things we've sort of over the last few years has really started to come into it. Like, you know, there's awards now for, you know, people that are, you know, looking at innovation in sustainability and that sort of stuff, whether that's sort of from the, the restaurant waste end of the spectrum or whether it's from procuring ingredients end of the spectrum. And um, I think, you know, that's sort of like these innovative programs where people are like, people like Ben Shuri at Attica is sort of like working with Indigenous communities about particular plants that he's growing and stuff. And so in order to get the right quality quantities of these plants, like a yam daisy or something, he's Mm. been working closely with um, Indigenous communities down near Warrnambool on how to grow these commercially so that he's able to have a sustainable thing. So then it becomes the the people, the Indigenous people, become part of the loop in a commercial way. Mm. So it's sort of like, you know, it's that chef-driven thing as the part of, you know, 
the 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 whole philosophy of chefs is about trying to be sustainable and you know kind of respect where they're getting the ingredients from and so i think it's a as a trickle down thing i think it could be a really good thing for the food chain generally and is there a game meat that you think if you're part of the imagery isn't going to fly (laughs) (laughs) i think like you know as much as I do like... Yeah, I don't think we're going to see koala on the menu anytime soon, but, uh, you know, I think crocodile, um, as much as it tastes quite good, it's sort of like, you know, it is one of those foods that does taste like chicken, but mm-hmm. it's got a... Um, it's sort of got like a fish texture. It, like the texture of the meat is like fish, but it's kind of tricky to eat. You know, it's sort of like if you are, you know, with the uh, the ribs, you have to kind of, you know, it's like roll up your sleeves and have a have a bath afterwards because it's sort of like trying to sort of like, you know, get through to those bones is the only way that you can do it. And so. do, do they, in your experience, do they photograph well? Oh, always. always. <laughs> yeah. uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming in. No worries. Three triple R. Uh, earlier we were talking um, about, back in media, I found a story about a, a Japanese, um, actually I don't know if he was Japanese, it was a man scuba diving in um, Japan who got attacked by a um, giant octopus. Um, but in the same article they also mentioned uh, this a blogger from China um, thought it would be a great idea to attempt to eat a live octopus. That's horrible. Isn't it? It's so... However, um, obviously a horrific idea to begin with, but also dumb. Um, And at the start of the clip, um, she decides to let the octopus grip her face. So there's this octopus that... There is photos of it and I... What is wrong with this person? Oh, mate, what is wrong with people in general? Um, (laughs) But... um, I've just I decided not to watch the video. I didn't yeah. click on the link. I went, this photo's enough, and you've given me enough information on this. But it, basically, she just had this octopus just gripping on her face, and she couldn't, you know, obviously she went to pull it off, nearly pulled the skin of her face off. But um, uh, anyway, she's decided not to eat the octopus after oh, that, which is, yeah, which yeah. is great. All how, how are you going with octopuses? Oh, because, my God. So, you know, I have a feel like I yes. love, I'm fascinated by it octopuses Daniel mm. and also fearful of them yeah. because I think they're this extraordinary creatures and you always hear about how smart they are and I do expect that one day they might march up onto the earth and take over mm. Mm. especially following on for Dr Jen's segment I feel like they're going you guys have really failed here yeah. um, and when I was in Italy we stayed in this little town called Talaro which is kind of below Cinque Terre but kind of a bit harder to get to so not many people go there it's not as kind of populous a little bit mm. of a, its own little world and when we were there we it, it's a town of the octopus it's actually known as the town of the really? octopus really yes did you know that before you went no okay. i didn't i think maybe i'd read it but it hadn't kind of sunk in and then when i got there i read this little plaque and it and it, to, it talks about this myth all the people that have been taken by octopus <laughs> <laughs> sorry 15 lost this year. No. But there's this myth that uh, back in the many centuries ago, this town was under attack because it's a very old town. It was under attack by pirates. And when pirates used to attack, which happened quite commonly, they would ring this bell tower and and everyone would get warned that the pirates were coming and they'd go to defend the place. And on this one night, apparently, the pirates were coming. It was very foggy. The bell tower watchman had fallen asleep. (gasps) Yet when the pirates got close, the bell still rung. People all woke up. They scared off the pirates. And as it turned out, it was an octopus that had climbed the bell tower and rung the bell. 
Wow. So that's the myth. Knew okay? that was smart. This is the myth. I know. All right. And so I got this is really cool. So there's kind of octopus things all around town. They have this festival of the octopus in August where they eat octopus, which I find very strange. A, a weird way of celebrating an octopus is to eat it, but nonetheless. <laughs> Sorry for this mm. bell tower <laughs> operator. People uh, <laughs> <laughs> are worried about getting replaced by robots. <laughs> no, just the octopuses <laughs> that are coming for us. And... And so I was like, oh, this is really cool, you know, hanging out in the town, off this, you know, octopus, whatever. And, and during our days there, basically, we just lay around and swam in this little little kind of harbour where the boats, the fishermen come up. And it was a weekend, there was lots of Italians hanging out there. And there was a lot of activity for the town. It was basically mm. us and just some locals hanging out and swimming. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder if, you know, there, there are lots of octopus around here or whether that's just some weird myth that's a few hundred years old. Mm. And when we were sitting at this harbour, so many different things would happen because we just spent all day there eating focaccia and swimming. It was so, I know, it was heaven. Like there was a moment where um, a boat pulled up, okay, this speedboat pulls up, right, with four people on it and a guy jumps out with a fistful of something in his hand and he starts swimming towards us on the shore with one fist in the air, clenching. And I thought, I was like, oh, there's some kind of protest going on. And as he got closer... (laughs) Andrew goes, nah, he's got a fistful of euros. And this guy jumped out of his boat and was swimming madly towards the shore with this fistful of euros in like the air. in money? In, in money, yeah, it's in money. And uh, then he got onto the shore and disappeared. And then about uh, about 15 minutes later, he reappeared with this plastic bag full of alcohol. He'd obviously been out with mates, you know, fishing or whatever, uh. and decided that, he, that they wanted to get some alcohol but it, and he'd gone to all this effort to swim in with his fistful of money in his hand and then he swam back with this ha- handful of alcohol in the air as well with one arm and jumped back into his boat and sped off anyway that was just a highlight of some of the things that yeah. we saw when we were sitting around you thought it was a protest yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what. and so we kind of sat there all day just watching all these things unfold as they do you know the drama of a small town and then right at the end of one day Everyone jumps up and starts screaming. Everyone, you know, everyone is sunbaking, and I don't know what's going on. And then Andrew's screaming, and I'm going, "What's going on? Is the man back?" And he's like, "No, the man's not back." Look, who cares about the man? Just getting some beers, relax. (laughs) And he goes, "Look over there." And on the sunbait, the bit where everyone was kind of sunbaking, this massive octopus was climbing out. Of the ocean up onto the sunbaking platform, like its tentacles were coming out. It was. I couldn't believe, you know, when you go, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Have I gone mad? Yeah. And, I, and when you say it was the size of the octopus that you showed me in that piece. Oh, really? The like it was a giant octopus? A big octopus. It was a big octopus. And then everyone was just screaming about this. And then I ran over and we're all looking. And then I thought, what's it doing trying to get out? Yeah, climb the bell tower. Oh, oh, oh not yeah. not to start taking over the world. Like well, <laughs> no, but now you know the bell tower story. You're more on board with octopus. Well, I don't know if I'm on board, but then everyone scared it off and it went back in again. But then, how do you scare off an octopus? Oh, I don't know. It just gave up and it crawled back in again. I think it just went. You're all idiots. There was a dog there yeah, too. Fair. Oh, okay. And a barking at this giant octopus, and then it went in, and then we all stood around for about forty five minutes, you know, pointing at the water, trying to find it, and then I thought. Uh, I want to keep swimming, so I went in and I swam again. And I, Andrew said, oh, you know, be careful of the octopus. Earlier, also, he'd stepped on something spongy mm. when we were swimming, and he said that was something weird and spongy under my foot. And I joked, imagine if well, it was an octopus. Yeah. Uh, but so I kept swimming, thinking, I, oh, you know, octopus are very, they're not going to attack me when I'm swimming. Mm. And then you 
read this I've bloody story out about yeah. an octopus that attacks. So well, they said it is unlikely that an octopus would attack unless you try and eat it on a. If you're making a blog post, that it'll try eat your face like that woman did, or. Um, if you're one unfortunate diver. If you are going to see an octopus on a pier, you want it to be the end of the day. Y- why? Not the start of the day. Because then you, I'd be scared. Oh, because about going back in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I was. But I can't, it was very magical. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Because it, yes, it does sound... Just I, the I, idea I just, that I was in the town of the octopus, this, you know, there's it, this myth, and then this octopus climbs up this, yeah. out of nowhere. Like, it, it's there to show you, don't be afraid of me, Sarah. Yes. Yeah. I suppose the main question yes. is, how did it taste? <laughs> 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 Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. We're lucky to be joined by author, Triple R Perennial and Senior Research Fellow at Melbourne University, Tony Birch, to discuss the publication of his seventh and latest book, The White Girl. Tony, welcome back to Breakfasters. Um, thank you very much for having me, but I'm not at Melbourne University, I'm at Victoria University. I haven't been at Melbourne University for several years, thank God. Well, there you go, <laughs> and your book's published by Queensland University Press. Yeah, so. it's, it's, a, it's a university You're gig. You're academically yeah. promiscuous. I'm sponsored by academia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the novel is set just before the 1967 referendum on Aboriginal citizenship. Can you introduce us to this world and the story of The White Girl? Yeah, The White Girl's set in a fictional town of, of Dean, which could be anywhere in regional southeastern Australia and it focuses on a remarkable Aboriginal woman, um, Odette Brown, who's the sole carer for her granddaughter Sissy and it's four years before the referendum and although people may remember the referendum as as very successful in the sense that 90% of the Australians voted to give um, rights of Aboriginal people to the Commonwealth, um, it's also a time where local policemen, um, reserve managers, people who had control of Aboriginal lives on a daily basis were not well the notion of freedom and a new policeman comes to town a sergeant Lowe um, he targets Sissy because of not only but partly because of her fair skin and he's determined that um, he'll remove the girl from her, her grandmother um, there's also the looming threat of just sort of male violence in the town that um, Odette and Sissy have to face so Odette um, decides that the only way that she can escape this is actually to escape the, the town of her granddaughter. So the second half of the novel is about their escape from Dean and, and a shift to the city and, in, in a sense, what happens to them and the consequences of making that decision. Mm. The, how does your background in uh, academia as an historian, do you think, influence the novel? Well, it's interesting. I didn't do any what you might call new research for the novel, but when I taught history at... Um, Melbourne University, I'd done a lot of work, a lot of research and published on Aboriginal women's writing from reserves and missions, so I had a very clear sense of the the struggles that many Aboriginal women had gone through to, to have their children returned or to save their children or to, to hide their children from authorities. Um, I knew a lot about the um, half-caste acts and the segregation acts that were in place right across Australia, but also a lot of the stories that influenced the novel I knew from family, extended family and people in the Aboriginal community, so that, you know, it's shocking that um, as I've been writing the novel and talking to people, not surprisingly, but I, I don't know an Aboriginal person who hasn't been affected by the removal policies, either themselves or someone in their family. So I think it would be very unusual to find an Aboriginal family where 
somewhere in the last generation or two or even in the present circumstances that they haven't lost family and sometimes lost them forever. Mm. You also uh, evoke the, I think, the menacing nature of bullies uh, quite well. There's a, there's a, there's a sense that uh, of, I don't know, oppression and uncertainty that comes with um, these bullying forces. Do you have any uh, insight into the, this mindset? Well, I think the most important thing for the novel, and um, there are some what you might call inbuilt contradictions and complexities in the novel, and that's quite deliberate in the sense that, again, no Aboriginal person would be able to live in 20th century Australia, whether it be in rural Australia or in the cities or so-called remote parts of Australia, with any certainty. So that legislation, whether it be changes in legislation, whether it be summary justice enacted by a local policeman or so-called Aboriginal guardian, um, there was no sense that how you would be treated from one day to the next between one government official and the next. Um, I often mention this and it surprises some people that if you're an Aboriginal person born in New South Wales in the year 1900 and you live till the 1960s before the referendum, your legal status, your identity would have changed at least six times. Um, There are over 60 definitions of Aboriginal identity that have been enacted by governments since some federation. So uh, most Aboriginal people would think that, you know, I'm treated a certain way today and the next day because of a parliamentary decision or because of a, a local policeman with a pathological view of the world could could really change your world overnight. So it's it's horrible for women like Odette that she really doesn't have any certainty about how to stop people focusing their attention on Sissy and wanting to take Sissy away and it's why in the end she makes a decision to run. Mm, Odette is... Um uh, quite a, a stubborn character. Yeah. Is she based on anyone in particular or is it just kind of that general consensus of, you know, uh, a lot of Aboriginal wom- women just being so um, and strong and held fast in their beliefs and yeah, the way I've, things are? I was thinking, yeah, she's based on every Aboriginal woman yeah. I have to deal with every day. Um, <laughs> She is. She's certainly not based on any single Aboriginal woman or Aboriginal person, and that that was again important that Odette be her own fictional character. That to me, that's really important. That when I wrote Odette, that while I was heavily influenced by, again, older Aboriginal women I've known for all my life, or, or I work at Mundani Balak, which is an Aboriginal um, research unit at um, Victoria. University and I work with um, three remarkable women: um, Kim Kruger, um, Paula Bella, and um, Karen Jackson. And, mm. and each of those people, I gave early chapters of the book to to read. Yeah, Paula came in yesterday and yeah. told us about it. Yeah. And um, we did an event at VU last week where they grilled me for an hour in front of a big audience. So <laughs> they're fantastic because they they do keep men on their toes in an important and vital way but incredibly loving and, and supportive and when my daughter who launched the book read it she said of Odette she goes oh that's KJ Karen isn't it and uh, I said no it's not <laughs> <laughs> but what what those women and what all Aboriginal women represent that is um, present in Odette is a, a great stubbornness a great strength and a refusal to give up and um, I think the novel in a sense I knew at the outset before I'd written a word that it would be about a woman who who wouldn't give up who wouldn't give in to white Australia and and of course that's the story of Aboriginal society mm. um, my day job is in climate justice and climate change and um, the relationship between the destruction of country and the destruction of community is centred around 
white Australia's um, attempts to destroy the the rights of Aboriginal women first and foremost because mm. it's Aboriginal women who often are, are so important and central figures in, in community, culturally and family. The removal of um, Aboriginal children is obviously central to this book as well and we're uh, in a time where we're seeing the removal of children from families at a greater rate than they were during the stolen generation, mm-hmm. do you hope to kind of create a conversation around that again with a book like this? Well, there there clearly will be, and there has been conversations around those issues. So, yes, I, I hope to, and I'm sure there will be. Um, people have made some direct comparisons, but I think one of the things that is more frightening now is that... What happened to Aboriginal children and to families in the 20th century was incredibly cruel, but it was often couched in terms of benevolence. So mm. it was disguised of, you know, sort of um, assimilation policies, the well-being, care, those sort of terms, which were, you know, to mask what was actually happening. I think in the 21st century, the cruelty enacted against Aboriginal children, and I think there's a comparative issue around refugee children, is that the language around it is, in fact, overtly violent. And I often point out to people that when the Four Corners program highlighted the horrific torture of Aboriginal kids in the Dondale Detention Centre, um, if you look at the responses to that, one thing is those kids weren't released, even though those images were horrific. And um, Warren Mundine, an Aboriginal man who ran for the Liberal Party in the federal election, his only comment after seeing this film was, oh, well, these kids aren't angels. Um, People in the Northern Territory, politicians, were talking about these kids have been criminal. So there was no attempt to disguise the violence, and I think we're in a we're in an era now where we don't even use a language of benevolence. We we use a language of punishment to justify the cruelty that mm. we enact against Aboriginal kids. And we also kind of don't see much action. Like I was talking to Paula about this briefly yesterday, uh, after something like the the commission into the Dondale mm-hmm. situation. We haven't seen much action since then. How do you hope that these words and the words that you write? incite action in in Australia, particularly in white Australia? Yeah, I mean, again, I've been asked this around the book and I've been asked this around fiction to deal with climate as well, that the issues are similar. Um, It's it's an interesting conundrum for me because as a writer, I actually think the impact of, of any writing, I'm hopeful about it, but I think it's limited. I don't think, yeah, right, I actually don't think books sort of shift the world. Um, But as a reader... Books have shifted my world record, yeah. so it's a contradiction. Um, I always say, look, ultimately you've got to get out there and you've got to, you've got to fight. If, if reading a book like this and in relationship to what's happening, it inspires you to get out there and fight. And I mean sometimes that literally on the street to take action to the streets. Well, that, that's helpful. But um, I think just reading is, is, is a, pathi- a passive act of politicisation, <laughs> so it's got to have a follow-up. Um, so I hope it starts a conversation I do think and I know that this book, it's been so far, I mean, it's been well received critically, but um, it's been really well received by Aboriginal people. So that um, Paola Bella, for instance, her her mother, um, who would have experienced, not saying this particular history, but knowing her mother and growing up with this sort of violence as ever present in regional Victoria, she said she felt the book was true. So I think those sort of comments by Aboriginal people who have had this experience is important to me. Having said that, it, it's a work of fiction and it's got to stand on its own two feet. So um, I, I just, I'm waiting to have those ongoing conversations, which yeah. which I think will be 
I think will be positive. In the novel, Odette's relationship with the gift shop owner is very funny. Uh, can you speak to that dynamic and how that plays out? Yeah, well, I mean, just the dynamic in in, in the book is that Odette, um, she's a wonderful painter, she's an artist, and a white woman comes to town who has a, a gift shop in the nearest large town, um, and she's directed to Odette's home and um, she says to Odette that she would like to see her artwork and Odette you know, paints something for her, paints an image of, of flowers, flowers for her and then the woman is really excited by the quality of the work but she wants it authenticated and what she wants it authenticated by um, Odette to tell her her tribe, her tribal name and that's really important for me to write that because that is a very contemporary issue for me that yeah, you authenticate yourself as an Aboriginal person to non-Aboriginal Australia by giving not only your tribal name, your totems, your genealogy, your whole private life, which I, I never do, I refuse to do. I understand how Aboriginal people talk to each other around these issues, but giving up yourself to non-Aboriginal people to authenticate yourself in their eyes, I think, is, is terrible. And what happens in the novel is that when she asks Odette, her, her tribe, Odette knows exactly where she comes from and who her people are, but she is stubborn again. So what she does, she looks across the kitchen table at a jar, jar of honey and <laughs> sees the name Bilga Honey on it, and she says, I'm from the Bilga people. <laughs> And then the woman looks off into the distance and she goes, oh, yes, the Bilga people. <laughs> As if she can see him. So it's a, it's a, it's a moment where Odette undermines that woman's yeah, patronage and control of her. And um, people have picked up on that and really, really like that because, you know, you get sick and tired of having to to lay yourself out in front of someone to, to authenticate yourself. And I, it was one of those moments in the book where I thought I wanted Odette to get something back on, on, on White Australia. When we meet um, the character, Sergeant Lowe, when he first comes to town, we kind of immediately know that he is straight up a bad dude. He's bad. He's bad. <laughs> bad to the bone. Uh, however, you know, when we meet other characters throughout the book, I found that I was kind of, there was this moment of, oh, I don't know what your intentions are. Like, I don't know if you're good or bad. Um, was that like a deliberate thing? You know, it, the kind of characters are someone that, that you're like, I don't know if a debt or sissy can trust this person. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think that um, the policeman, Sergeant Lowe, he is just bad and... Um, it might surprise people, but there are people out there who are just bad. And um, one of the reviewers picked up that he thought maybe the policeman should be a bit more nuanced. So I think you know, if you're still children during the day, you may go home and do macrame of, of a night. But <laughs> it didn't really interest me to go down that path. And, um, yeah, he, I, he was bad, yeah. Mm. And, and, look, I have to say, yeah, when you read letters... Um, as I talked about before, where an Aboriginal mother pleads with a local policeman for two decades to have her daughter returned and the local policeman writes back with chilling disinterest that, no, she will not be coming back and if you persist in trying to get her back, I will cut off your ration, I will cut off you know, your supply to, mm. to daily sort of existence. That, that's pretty evil. So he is a bad character. But I think you point out something really important. For the rest of the characters in the book, whether it be Henry Lamb, um, there's a doctor, Dr Singer, um, just people that Odette comes across is that 
um, one is that, of course, most people are more complex than just good or bad, but the fact is that in Henry Lamb and, say, Bill Shea, the other policemen in the town, Odette's relationships with them are really important. Henry Lamb was written with a particular purpose in mind in that um, he might be what some people call intellectually challenged, but he, to me, has the greatest emotional intelligence of any mm. non-Aboriginal person in the book, and they're relationship is one of of, of love um, there's a moment for me which is very tender when um, they leave each other for the final time and Odette it says that she would never been touched by a white man before not voluntarily and to hug mm. that man was a different experience for her but I wanted to epitomise their friendship and Bill Shea's an important character the the older policeman in the town who's He's a, he's a town policeman and he's a town drunk, so he cuts out the middleman. <laughs> um, is that he's quite complex because he also grew up around Odette. And at one point in the novel, he actually says, oh, when I was a kid, I thought I was a black fella. And so Odette says, so did I. Not because he was dark, because he just hung around yeah. them. But the forces of um, colonialism and colonial violence mean that Bill Shea becomes a man who stands by and lets children be taken. And he pays the price for that with his own downfall. So in that sense, um, I wanted to highlight that in country towns, specifically in this case, historically there are relationships between non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people which can border on friendship but then just disintegrate or explode because of the malevolent forces of colonisation that separate people. And I I think the tragedy of um, colonial violence is that the potential to have intimate friendships amongst Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people has often historically been really impacted on very negatively by those forces. Mm. Well, Tony Birch's seventh and latest book, The White Girl, is out now through Queensland University Press. Tony, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. 